We're going to look at a story in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 32. Let's be standing, please, as this is the Word of God in our lives. Beginning in verse 36. In Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha, which when translated is Dorcas, and if you want to bring it into English, it's gazelle, who was always doing good and helping the poor. About that time, she became sick and died, and her body was washed and placed in an upstairs room. Now, Lydda was near Joppa, so when the disciples heard that Peter was in Lydda, they sent two men to him and urged him, please come at once. Peter went with them, and when he arrived, he was taken upstairs to the room. All the widows stood around him, crying and showing him the robes and other clothing that Dorcas had made while she was still with them. Peter sent them all out of the room. Then he got down on his knees and prayed. Turning toward the dead woman, he said, Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes, and seeing Peter, she sat up. He took her by the hand and helped her to her feet. Then he called the believers and the widows and presented her to them alive. Now this became known all over Joppa, and many people believed in the Lord. Peter stayed in Joppa for some time with a tanner named Simon. May God bless the reading of his word. I think many of you here are aware that Pat and I just returned from a trip. It's a trip where we kind of check some things off our bucket list of major things in the world we would like to see. And it's interesting, as you're planning a trip like that, you certainly have in mind the things that you've heard about and that you just want to go there and actually see those things. But the interesting thing is that once you start making the trip and going and seeing the major sites, that it's some of the smaller things that perhaps you didn't even know existed. Smaller towns or smaller things in the large towns that really had never heard of that are really captivating and interesting, and you find yourself drawn to those and glad that you got to see them. Well, the reason I was thinking about that is, is I was thinking about the book of Acts this week, and when you bring up the book of Acts, you think of some major stories that are there that really do form us in our faith and our view of church and our whole views of God. And we think of the day of Pentecost, uh, think of the stoning of Stephen, think of the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch or the conversion of Saul as he turned from being a persecutor of the church to become the great and mighty apostle Paul. And think about the story of Cornelius, uh, which is so important to all of us in this room because it was in that story where the gospel broke out of, of being limited to the Jewish community and reached out into all the world and to us Gentiles. And the invitation was extended then for us to come and to be a part of the kingdom of God. So Acts is full of these great stories, and those are the ones we tend to think of. But in between those stories, there's some smaller stories. 
Stories that we perhaps sometimes forget about or even when we're reading through the book of Acts, we'll read through those rather quickly because they don't seem to carry the same weight and the same import as some of the giants that are around them. Well, between the story of the conversion of Saul on the Damascus Road and the story of the conversion of Cornelius as the Holy Spirit descends upon him and his Gentile household. We find two of these little stories. One of them is the story of Peter going and healing a man named Aeneas, a man who had been paralyzed for a very long time. And the other is this story that we just read. The story happened in a little town named Joppa, to a woman and to a church there, and that turned their lives around and is a really very beautiful story that I think if we'll just give it a little bit of time and a little bit of attention, we can find that something really good and necessary is said within this story. It happened in the seacoast town of Joppa. Now, those of you who are Bible students know the name Joppa. Uh, where did we first run into that name? Do you, can you recall? It's in the book of Jonah. Remember Jonah, that prophet of God that was called to go to Nineveh, the great and powerful Nineveh, and to preach the word of God? And he said, no way am I going there. And he turned and he headed the other direction. And it was in Joppa that he caught his ship to make his way to Tarshish, which was the uttermost part of the end of the world to him, to get as far away from God as he could get. Well, that's where we first run into Joppa. Joppa's still there. It's now a suburb of the modern city of Tel Aviv, and now it goes under the name of Haifa. But in this little village there on the seacoast, we run into one of the first Christian communities, one of the first churches outside of the city of Jerusalem. And as we look at the story of this church, we're impressed with how vibrant the church is and how God had actually worked in the hearts of these people. And that in this church, God was obviously at work producing a close-knit community, one that was filled with love and grace. Now, our avenue into that community and seeing all that's going on there is the story of this woman, Tabitha or Dorcas or Gazelle. She's introduced to us as a wonderful Christian lady. In fact, the word that's used to describe her as a woman disciple occurs only one time in all the Scripture. It's kind of just held back just for Dorcas. She was that special. And we know that she was someone who was, was devoted to doing good works and especially to acts of mercy among the poor. So we have her introduced to us as this wonderful Christian woman, but as the story progresses, we find that she grows ill, and her illness then leads to death. And that's really all we know about her. Don't know how old she is. We don't know if she was married or not. Don't know if she was one of the widows or not. But we know that she was so much a part of this community, that this community loved her so dearly that they did things a little differently when she passed away. 
The normal way that you dealt with a death in this area of the world was that you buried that person on the same day. But they took her body and lovingly washed it, and then they took it and put it where? In the upper room. Now, I know you could say, well, that was because the upper room was cooler and it was breezes blowing through, and that may have something to do with it, but upper room in Luke's writing carries a real great significance. It's kind of like, you know, when every time Luke says breaking of bread, he's meaning the Lord's Supper. And when he pulls out this word upper room, he wants us to think back to that first upper room that Jesus gathered with his disciples in the night before he died. And there he loved on them and encouraged them and gave them this beautiful gift that continues to us through today, the Lord's Supper. And then we know that in the first part of Acts, where were the disciples still gathering whenever Jesus had been crucified? In the upper room. Where did they continue to gather with him after he had been shown to be resurrected from the dead and to be with them again? In the upper room. If you want to skip a little bit later, when Paul went and met with the church that met in Tarsus and he preached till midnight, remember that story? Don't worry, it's not going to happen, okay? That's always one of those passages that when you read it, you think, oh, we could be in trouble here. But anyway, Paul, where was he preaching? In the upper room. The upper room came to signify to the, to the early church the place of worship, the sanctuary. And this church loved their Tabitha so much that when she passed away, they gently took care of her body and went and placed it probably in their room of worship where they had gathered as a church and where they had enjoyed so many of those good times together of loving on each other and encouraging each other and hearing the Word of God preached. Now, as they're gathered around her there, someone says, you know, Peter, the apostle, is in the next village over, Lydda, not very far away. And so they immediately sent a couple of guys to him to ask him to come to them. Now, their question comes up, why? What's going on here? Do they think that he will raise Tabitha from the dead? I don't know. Or are they just wanting in their grief and in their anguish to have someone of the stature and the spiritual maturity of Peter come to them and minister to them? Well, when Peter hears what's happened, he immediately goes there. He's immediately taken up into the upper room, and there the church is gathered around as they're mourning the loss of their dear Tabitha. And among them are some of the widows of the church and perhaps even Widows just simply of the community itself. And they are weeping the loss of their friend. And as Peter comes in, they begin showing him the things that she had done for them. The clothes that maybe they were even wearing on their bodies, saying, look, she made this for me. She made this for me. Well, then the story becomes told in very short, choppy sentences in a very profound way. It says that Peter immediately told everybody to get out of the room. And so they all get out of the room, and he bows down on his knees and begins praying. And as he's praying, he stops and rises and turns 
toward Tabitha and says, Tabitha, arise. And Tabitha opens her eyes. And when she sees Peter, she sits up. And Peter walks to her and hands, offers his hand and helps her to stand and calls in the church and all the widows. And you can just imagine the scene whenever he presents Tabitha, the one they love so much, to them alive. Now, this is what is commonly known as a miracle story. And I believe it is a miracle story. And when we talk about miracles, our eyes are really drawn to this wondrous event that occurred and something totally outside our experience, and that is returning someone from the dead. And when you begin focusing on that, you can have several conversations. Now, there's a lot of people that say, now, this is the reason I don't really believe much in the Bible, because you have these stories like this that I don't think they really happen that way that someone just kind of made this up in order to, uh, you know, give some kind of weight to this, uh, the preaching of the gospel and God's Word. And I don't really think so. Well, I hope that not many of you are a part of that school of thought. Others people, when they hear these miracle stories, they say, wow, that's the way it was back then. You know, that could happen back then, that because Peter was an apostle, he had this special power that he could raise someone from the dead through the power of the living Jesus. But it couldn't happen today. It doesn't happen today and wouldn't happen today. And then there's other people that said, well, you know, if we had as much faith as that church had, then it would happen again. And the only reason things like this don't happen is because we don't really believe in them strongly enough and believe that God will do these things. So we can talk about that miracle a lot and on a lot of different levels. But you know what? That's not really the miracle in this story that is most important or draws me the most. There is another miracle in this story. And perhaps it kind of depends on what your definition of miracle is. But I'm working with the definition now that a miracle is any time we can actually see God at work. When it just becomes so obvious to us that God is doing something directly, then I kind of slide that over in the miraculous category. And besides the raising of Tabitha from the dead, in this church there is another work of God happening, and that work is the miracle of the community of this church. How God had obviously drawn these people together in such a way that they really shared the same soul and the same heart and the same life and the same breath. And you see, in the ancient world, there were so many reasons why people could not meet together and experience this kind of community. There were slave owners and there were slaves. There were Jews and there were Gentiles. And men and women weren't really ever supposed to be in the same room together. There were so many reasons that a community could not form and that that community could not grow into the oneness and share the same heart. It took the Spirit of God to produce a community like that. And when I think about that, I think, you know, in our own world, 
There are so many things that work on keeping us apart. There are so many things that keep us from enjoying what God had in mind whenever he called us to be his family, to be his church. I appreciated Jim's prayer about how Satan is alive and working in this world. And we certainly see that in things like the terrible events of this past week. And yet then we turn to our scripture and find out that God is totally opposed to all of that. That he wants us as humanity to be bound together. But most importantly, he wants us as his church to break down the barriers that keep us from really enjoying the deep relationships with one another that is his goal and that is his ideal. You know, it's easy for us to be a part of a large group and find within that large group a few friends. And and we base that on many things. We base it on, on people that are kind of the same age as us or people that kind of do the same kind of work that we do or people that have about the same amount of money that we have or people that are the same race that we are. Or we kind of get in a group and we, we start looking for friends. We just traveled with a tour group. And, uh, you know, it was interesting to see uh, which of those people that we kind of gravitated to and found some common interest in. But we were about the same age and about the same you know, situation in life. We had children and grandchildren. And, and, but what was wonderful was when that all began to break down and we made friends with people that are totally different from us, didn't we, Pat? <laughs> well, that's what church is meant to be where the Spirit of God is alive and well and is working the miracle of community and pushing past all those barriers to where we breathe with the same breath and our heart beats as one. All through Scripture, as we read about the work of the Spirit, you know, sometimes our eyes are kind of drawn off to seeing things like, well, the Spirit can make you speak in tongues or the The Spirit can do this kind of wild thing over here. But if you're open and honest about the work of the Spirit as you read about it, its primary work in our lives is to pull us together and to break down those barriers that stand between us so that we can experience life the way God intended for us to experience it. And that is linked arm in arm with our hearts drawn close to one another. For example, 1 Corinthians has a lot about this. In 1 Corinthians 12, verse 7, Paul says, To each Christian is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good, to pull us together. In verse 12, he says, In one Spirit we have all been baptized into one body. That includes Jews and Greeks and slaves and free. And he could go on and talk about cool and uncool and likable and unlikable. And All of us have been made to drink of the one Spirit. And because that spirit beats in my heart and lives within me, then I am drawn to you as a brother or a sister in Christ. He goes on in chapter 13 then, immediately following that, talking about the greatest work of the spirit is to bring us together in love. And then he closes out his second letter to the Corinthians with a passage that we often read at the end of a service. But in it, Paul expresses his greatest dream and desire for the church. He says, may the grace of Jesus live in you. The grace of Jesus that you experience yourself and it fills you up so much that it flows over and you offer that same grace to those whom you encounter. And may the love of God 
live in you. So that you may feel that God loves you and that you are always close to Him, but because His love overflows in your heart, you've got enough love to throw out there on other people as well. And then he ends it by saying, and may you experience the community of the Holy Spirit, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. May you come to learn what it means to be a part of a family that is drawn together and loves together and lives together. One more passage is Ephesians where Paul talks about at the end of chapter 2 that in Christ we're all joined together into a holy temple. We're built together into a family of God. And he says, and this happens in the Spirit. And then he says, make every effort to maintain that unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace because there's one body, one Spirit, one hope, one calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all. When I read the story about Tabitha, I'm so glad that Tabitha got to live a few more years and to do the wonderful things that she did. But I read that story, I think, man, we can be a church like that. We can be a church where we all embrace each other in love and we find that the fellowship of the Holy Spirit binds us together. We're going to stand, we're going to sing a song, and that song is an invitation for anyone to enter into this fellowship, whether you need to walk through the door of baptism to become a part of God's family to begin with, or perhaps you've wandered away and have not lived a life that is joined together with God or with His people. Then we're here with our arms open with the fellowship of the Spirit to offer to you. Let's stand and sing.